Hey, it's Mike. Before we get started, I would love your input to help make this podcast even better. And you could win up to $100 in gift cards from Amazon. Just go to buildgood.org slash survey and fill out the short form that will take you less than three minutes to complete. And that's it. Uh, you're, you're entered to win a $50 gift card from Amazon. And if you review the podcast in Apple Podcasts and then you send me a screenshot of your review to mike at buildgood.org, you are entered to win another $50 gift card from Amazon. All right, let's get into it. Helping nonprofit marketers, fundraisers, and leaders like you grow their revenue and impact so they can do more good in the world. This is the Build Good Podcast. Now here's your host, Mike Dirksen. Well, hello, and thank you for joining me on the Build Good Podcast. This is the show for people like you who work hard to build a better world for all of us. If you're like many nonprofits, you are back at the office after, you know, maybe taking some time off in early January to recover from, from the hectic year-end fundraising season. And you're looking at the year 2021, and hopefully you have your fundraising planned out already, um, or, or maybe you're working on it. Uh, but if, if you don't, if you're still working on it, today we're going to talk to Barbara O'Reilly about a recipe for fundraising growth. Barbara is the president of Windmill Hill Consulting, and she recently teamed up with the Institute for Sustainable Philanthropy for a study to see what difference it makes to have a fundraising plan in place. Now, the question she set out to answer is, what role does having a development and fundraising plan play in an organization's success? Is there a link between having a plan in place and actually achieving growth and success? And during that study, Barbara found four things every successful nonprofit had in common. And we're lucky to learn from her today. So let's get right into it. Here's my conversation with Barbara O'Reilly, four factors that influence fundraising success. Thanks for coming on the show. I know that today's topic is top of mind for many of our listeners. Uh, we're starting a brand new year with, with, with brand new possibilities. So thank you for making the time. Oh my gosh, Mike. I'm so thrilled to be here to, to chat with you about one of my favorite topics. Well, we're going to talk about the impact that planning out your fundraising for the year can have on your actual fundraising performance and your actual fundraising results. And I don't know about you, Barbara, but a lot of organizations I've been talking to, they just can't wait to have a do-over in 2021. Many are happy to still be alive, to have closed out the year in, in decent shape, some in great shape, some in okay shape. But everyone seems to be really excited for the year ahead. And um, I, I know many are, are sort of hoping they can catch up from last year, you know, catch up with donor acquisition, catch up with some of the things that fell by the wayside. Hopefully, many are seeing this as a chance to optimize what they're doing and not just go right back to the way that things were before. Uh, and that's why having you on the, on the show today is such a big help. Uh, you, you partnered with Dr. Adrian Sargent and the Institute for Sustainable Philanthropy, for a new study you just released to see if and how development planning correlates to an organization's success. And I think anecdotally, that sort of makes sense for a lot of us. Like it makes sense if you have a plan 
your chances of succeeding are higher just by the virtue of the fact that you sat down and then you planned it and you went about your work with intention and, and commitment and resolve. But now you have some definitive data, at least of the organizations that you studied. So for your study, let's begin here. Did you find that having a plan ends up relating to better fundraising outcomes? Yeah, you know, and it's um, it's interesting because we walked into this study assuming that that was the case. You know, we we have the anecdotal evidence, but what was kind of reassuring was seeing that the respondents, you know, did show that correlation. So we had some data that quantify, you know, that could quantify our assumptions. And but what was interesting was that it wasn't just the act of writing the plan, but there were so many other factors that went into. Um, the mindset about how to develop the plan, the involvement of team members and volunteers to actually stay true to the plan or, you know, be mindful of the plan. And then also the accountability piece, you know, are we, uh, is it a plan that is actually used and uh, is, is helpful? Or is it a plan that is kind of written and then put on the shelf and things are kept as they have always gone? So what was more surprising was the the these other sort of um, influencing factors, if you would, to the actual plan that became sort of more interesting to even dig into a little bit more in the research because these other factors we've always, um, you know, I've sort of always worked with clients and and helped to develop, but all together they provide a more um, uh, more stable approach to revenue growth and to donor retention overall. Right. So you've identified four main other factors that, that influence fundraising success. And I want to get into those. Uh, but before we do that, just for context, when we're talking about having a fundraising plan, are we talking about this written down plan or what do these plans look like? So they they are um, some sort of written down plan. And usually what I find are the more helpful ones are first um, having kind of a top line, you know, not just what you're what your revenue goal is. So how much do you need to raise? But then how do you, how are you planning to raise that? So, you know, your annual giving, your large gift strategies, the cultivation activities or stewardship activities that will feed into a more positive and, and um, uh, donor engagement uh, and, and sort of donor satisfaction, which ultimately can lead to more revenue. Um, so all of these then break down into those sort of sub goals that can that tie to that overall fin- financial goal. And what I have always found helpful is it makes it more manageable, right? So you're not just looking at this big, large number and sort of left scratching your head thinking, how are we, we going to get there? It breaks it down into your different channels for sure. Uh, so it helps teams if you've got teams or, or even staff folks um, who are assigned to these different um, channels to have a, a very clear sense of what their roadmap needs to be to get to that overall kind of rolled up goal. But it also helps senior leaders and boards to understand that fundraising isn't just, you know, sort of asking randomly. It isn't that spray and pray approach of let's just ask everybody we know for for money. There's a process to it and there's a strategy to it and there's metrics and, and other disciplines to thinking about how we grow strategically, how we 
course correct. And so those storylines underneath all of that, uh, I find are always helpful for senior leaders and boards who are less comfortable with fundraising, not at all uh, an understanding of the kind of the process of of uh, what fundraising, what good fundraising really looks like for them to see all of this together. And so having this in some sort of plan written document doesn't have to be overly complicated, but something that everybody can refer to and use and fill out, uh, you know, fill in numbers as they go through the fiscal year is important. Yeah. So in general, are we talking about one year plans? Or are we talking about three year plans? Is this part of a larger strategic plan? So the larger strategic plan for the organization is that ultimate, it's sort of that, um, that overall roadmap for the organization. That is you know, where the organization is going to go as a whole, that feeds into what your fundraising case for support is. What do you need the funds for? Um, uh, you know, that, that question. But the development plans themselves, generally, I find it's helpful just to write a one-year plan. Although, if an organization has a very specific growth plan in mind, so so, for example, if they know that they if they would like to raise um, or like to double revenue or like to hit a certain number by a certain period of time, uh, it's a good exercise to start to chart that out. What does it look like? What you know? What are our trend lines? What have they been? You know, what has our typical growth rate been over the last maybe couple of fiscal years, few you know, five fiscal years, whatever the time frame is that they want to track. But then, um, and then start to kind of do the the math of. Well, if we want to get to that dollar point or whatever the um, growth rate is, what is that going to look like year over year? That piece doesn't have to be as detailed, but the more important piece that has to be detailed is that one-year plan, because then you can build and iterate from it um, in subsequent years. But having that sort of back of the back of the envelope math, if you would, of know we want to get to X amount by a certain year. What is that going to look like to be incrementally growing in a way that's sustainable, realistic to what we what we have now? And then we can start to plan now if there are additional staff we have to hire, additional um, activities like acquisition, deep, you know, more investment in acquisition or more investment in certain channels. Um, they can start to build that into their expense budget, you know, sort of over time as opposed to oh my gosh, we've got to double our revenue next year and we have two staff people, two fundraisers to do that. Um, that's not helpful. So I find like the longer multi, multi-year multi plan is probably not as useful for the active activities necessarily, but the, the fiscal year is a good starting point. You've identified four key common traits uh, that successful organizations share um, when it comes to having a fundraising plan. So number one is a, a fundraising culture. Number two is data-informed planning. Number three is the actual commitment to the plan. And number four is the involvement of senior leadership and the board. So I want to get quickly into, into all of these. So let's start with fundraising culture. We hear this a lot. You know, your organization should have a culture of philanthropy. But what does that actually mean? So Adrian, in some earlier research um, that he and I think Dr. Shang had done together, talked about this sort of uh, sense of culture and donor centricity. Um, And what they found was that that culture, it's defined by how you think about your donors. So are, are you thinking about your donors as people, as people who have values, who have priorities philanthropically, as people who are investing in your organization for a whole host of reasons that you you really should find out and learn about? How 
you build that relationship, how you think about your activities in, you know, that donor satisfaction, that donor uh, engagement, that those donor drivers is really what donor centricity is all about. So that's one piece of it. Um, And whether an organization has that donor centricity is reflected on the language they use in their communications, the strategies they take in their outreach uh, or not, in how they how they perceive and how they view donors generally. Are they do they view them as investors or do they do they view them as walking ATMs where fundraising becomes transactional and not about you know sort of incremental deepening investment in an organization. Uh, the other is around believing in philanthropy. So. This can be tricky for organizations that have multiple revenue lines, uh, you know, earned income, fee for service and so forth, but where philanthropy is not the deal breaker for them as an organization, is not the the make or break uh, for their service delivery and, and so forth. And so do we believe in the power of philanthropy as an opportunity to connect donors with something that's bigger than all of us? Um, and that sounds a little bit sort of uh, idealistic, but that's ultimately what what philanthropy is all about. It's about using our gifts to make the world a better place in some way. This is really tied to how we view donors and that whole donor's interest I just talked about. So that's one of the other pieces of it. But then then that translates into that strong case for support. So how are you defining why you need those funds? How are you defining your organizational um, stake in the ground for solving the problem that your organization was set up to solve and address. Again, that comes back to answering those questions of why does my organization you know, exist? Why are these funds that we need to raise now to solve this problem urgent now? Why should I as a donor care about this mission, care about this problem, care about this organization delivering on that, that, uh, that solution? So that is uh, another piece of it. And whether or not everybody in the organization can articulate that case uh, as well. So that's um, an important piece of that. And then the degree to which board and senior staff, ultimately, though, the degree to which board and all staff can embrace this mindset also defines it. Because if the board themselves, the senior staff, don't view philanthropy as important, don't view donors as important um, in these ways that I've just described, then that trickles down to the rest of the staff. The staff, the rest of the staff, especially fundraisers, and you know, they will feel like the burden of raising all these funds are solely on their um, on their shoulders. So, all of this together is that uh, are important indicators of that mindset within the organization, that culture. So you've identified two things here. One is having a, a donor centered approach in your fundraising. Uh, the other one is having a mindset of philanthropy. And I mean, I, th- I think a lot of development shops, a lot of fundraisers are, are there. I think some boards and leaders are there. I think it's often hard for the rest of the organization to get there. So if you're a staff member working in the field or you are delivering services to beneficiaries or or you're not working in the fundraising shop, um, it can sometimes be harder to get there. And I'm wondering, the organizations that, that you studied that were doing this really well, what were they doing? And were they were they also measuring their success, not just in terms of dollars raised, but in terms of of how on board everyone in the organization was with this donor-centered or or philanthropic mindset? I would say that to the extent that any um, 
program staff uh, or any non-fundraising staff can be involved in some way or become aware of the donor engagement process is going to be especially helpful in changing those mindsets or in getting them sort of on board uh, with this um, th- this idea of philanthropy and donor centricity. And where, where it comes into play more is uh, the extent to which they can have some sort of interaction with the donors. So often, you know, having program staff be featured in some communications or having them part of virtual donor in this right now, virtual donor meetings, but, you know, pre-corona would have been uh, bringing them to events where you're going to have donors, whether it's a stewardship event or cultivation event or whatever, um, having them connect with, um, with, with those who are making their work possible, having them, you know, write thank you notes or some sort of updates where it, you know, that's going out to donors, some way for them to understand there's more to to philanthropy than just getting those checks or contributions. And that's where it becomes um, really important to identify who are the stakeholders that are part of implementing this ultimate development plan. So there's, you know, as you're mapping out what what do we need to raise? How are we going to raise it? Who's going to raise to help us raise this is an equally important part of the question uh, to answer in a development plan. So it could be that you're doing uh, you're, you're intentionally planning certain update reports that are going to go out from a program person, or you're going to have certain donors connected with certain you know um, um, program staff or seniors, other senior staff, uh, or board members. And so that's where more folks can get exposed to what all the pieces of fundraising. The better better informed and the better aware they'll be of how this is really more than just asking and receiving gifts. Yeah, I I love that. And just sitting down with staff and saying, look, here's where we're going as an organization. Here, Here's why that matters to your job and the things that you like to do. And here's how we get there. We get there by doing these sorts of things um, because they fund the work. And, and here's a small role that you can play in actually taking part in that, right? Yeah. When I was in-house, um, I was always, you know, glued at the hip with program staff, uh, where it, whatever organization I was at, because... Um, they not only could they speak more directly and more authentically to you know the the actual programmatic work, but it actually improved the donor relationship when I could bring a, a program staff member to update on a you know a program we were doing or answer questions or brainstorm uh, with the with the donor if they because they might have had a particular interest in that area of work, I could see firsthand the transformation from uh, from the, the program staff side, you know, walking before walking into that donor meeting, they had a particular mindset about what fundraising was about or what donors were about. And then over a course of time, after multiple conversations with certain donors, they understood the that there were deeper questions that they were asking that this was you know this was a much more intentional uh, approach and it gave them a greater appreciation for um for this whole process it, it was as valuable to have them not only just to be able to offer that programmatic expertise, which deepened the relationship with the donor anyway, um, but it also enabled 
the you know, enable them to see that their role had an important um, yeah. influence in the in the relationship for the right. Gentleman. Yeah, I love that. In a previous job, the the, the development shop I was in, for, um, because of the way it was set up, was was fairly removed from the program people, and so when we would get notes of thank you from donors, we would just pass them on to the program people, and um, and give them the credit, right, and say, hey, a, a donor just called to say thank you to you for doing the kind of work that you do. And uh, and when we didn't do that for a while, we would sort of get comments like, "Oh, did you get any? Did you get any donor feedback lately?" Uh. <laughs> right. It's interesting because it actually strengthens the relationship with the donors overall because it is no longer just resting on the fundraiser. There, the donor can you know, and the the non fundraisers on the team see that they're all interconnected uh, to this overall you know uh, positive engagement with the organization. Right. All right. So that's number one: having a culture of philanthropy. Number two is data-informed planning. What does data-informed planning look like? Like what, what data do successful organizations analyze as part of their planning? So I can tell you the data-informed planning it does not look like uh, the development staff being given a number that's sort of that's seemingly out of the sky and and expected to raise. You know that seems a little flippant, but I've seen it so often where fundraisers uh, and fundraising teams are given a number and said, "Okay, here this is how much we need to raise next year," uh, but it's not based on any reality. And so, part step one of looking at a data informed planning process is understanding what are those trend lines. So how much have they typically been able to raise year over year? What's their percentage of growth? Where are there certain anomalies, uh, donor retention, average gift, all of those pieces, those internal data points to, to understand how can they continue that upward trajectory? But some other pieces of data that are important are doing you know, a SWOT analysis. So this is something that you would do in a strategic planning process generally, but it's also useful to do it at least, you know, in a, uh, on a yearly basis to say, with regard to your fundraising activities, what are the, what are your strengths, your weaknesses, your opportunities, and your threats around your fundraising? Um, so that you can understand, especially then, those external factors that might help or hinder your fundraising. And what's really interesting is that in, in the Adrian's research, only about 30% of respondents said that they do any external market landscape or uh, uh, and 40% said they do a SWOT. So I find that at least if you can have a sense of what else is going on in the world, where is where are the philanthropic trends? Are there things happening uh, in the economy, in politics that are going to influence how we fundraise, uh, who we fundraise from? And so those, you know, that doesn't have to be a ton of time. Um, and I'm, I'm sensitive to to this section, this recommendation about data-informed planning, because I don't want um, fundraisers to think that they've got to spend an, an inordinate amount of time digging into this. But having a very clear sense of what's going on around us that might make it harder or easier for us to fundraise, what are our own strengths and weaknesses and opportunities and threats, then overlaying that to your overall trend lines of growth, you know, upward, downward, your donor retention and so forth. Those are the things that you want to do or at least be aware of each at the beginning of your planning process for the next fiscal year. 
Right. So at its core, it's looking at past performance of the different fundraising channels and activities, how different segments of donors have performed. It's reviewing your your donor communications and your fundraising appeals results uh, and just looking at the health of the donor pipeline as a whole and then making decisions on where to invest, where to improve, maybe what to cut. Is this uh, an ongoing thing? Uh, Are we updating the plan Every six-ish months, are, are we keeping a close look at these numbers? How are we doing this? So it's definitely an ongoing thing. Um, once you've got your plan in place, once you have, uh, you've set your goals financially and otherwise, you definitely want to be uh, tracking these. You know, it's a hard question to answer cleanly because it depends on the capacity of the staff. So in the minimum, I would be recommending measuring these quarterly so that you are able to course correct quickly uh, or or relatively quickly if anything is starting to go downward. If, you know, there are trends or your donor retention is not holding where it needs to be or, you know, whatever, what have you. But, you know, if you've got a, a more robust staffed size, I would definitely be looking at this on a monthly basis. Certainly, some of these data points I would encourage sharing with the board in a fundraising report that goes to the board, however often they meet, uh, because these are these are really helpful to to educate boards on everything that goes into fundraising. So I've seen I've sat in client board meetings where they talked about you know their progress against their dollar goal, and then. You know, and they and they may not have been as close to getting hitting that dollar goal as they liked, uh, or where they should be, where they felt they should be at that in that moment in time. But they were able to say, "But our file size is growing, our donor retention is up, our average gift is up, you know, our new donor number is up." Uh, and so these pieces, other conditions, we believe will be able to, you know, set us up for a strong, you know, fiscal year end. And so that. Put, paints a very different picture. So I would say that being very sensitive to the the variance in um, in staff sizes, don't get overwhelmed by trying to measure all of these metrics. Um, and certainly on a frequent basis, uh, if your capacity won't allow it, but at least just focus on your your retention numbers. If you can't do anything else, focus on your retention because. Retention has a direct correlation to how much energy you're putting into everything. So if you are constantly, you know, feeling overwhelmed, constantly doing all this over this this additional work, and you are losing donors, you want to think about segmenting differently, targeting your work differently, so that you are focusing your very limited staff bandwidth uh, and energy on the things that are going to raise you more money, which are investing back in those donors who have already supported you in the past, who know you, who are ready and willing and able um, and likely to make another gift if you can focus your attention on them. So that's number two, which is data-informed planning. Number three is probably where a lot of great fundraising ideas and intentions go to die, and and that's commitment to the plan. Uh, there's that famous, uh, like overused Mike Tyson quote, which is that everyone has a plan until they get punched in the face. How many of the organizations you studied actually stuck to the plan in broad strokes? There were actually quite a high percentage of the survey respondents who did, which was pleasantly surprising. But what's interesting is the degree to which they they tracked and, and stayed to the plan, um, you know, kind of varied. But 
one of the things, you know, one of the things we know from when we released the, the survey questions, um, it was literally like, I don't know, two weeks after everything locked down, we had this ready to go. And we, we really kind of deliberated as a, um, as, as a sort of a team to understand, should we, should we release this now? You know, we've been spending all this time kind of developing out the survey questions and so forth, but we felt that it was important to be able to release it because we wanted to have it as an opportunity to see how the coronavirus was going to be influencing it. And so the organizations that were able to have a plan and stick with it were, were more likely they were, they had a 14% higher confidence rate than those who didn't have a plan. And they also felt they were going to see a 10% loss in income as opposed to those that didn't. So that right there, the whole point of a plan is not just giving you a clear roadmap, but it's serving as that buffer to all those external factors that might influence and, and determine your degree of success. So that right there showed that the, there there was even greater urgency and importance to to sticking to that plan. Right. And it's giving you a little bit of an anchor, right? Because so many things can come at you from from all sides. Um, and some of those opportunities are going to be awesome opportunities. And some of them are going to be a waste of time and money. And so having a plan to just sort of go back to when an opportunity comes up and saying, well, well, what did we set out to achieve? And is this in line? Um, I want to talk a little bit about, about that, the, the tolerance for taking some risks and taking advantage of opportunities that come in. Um, because certainly I'm assuming that, that in, in, in general, you would want to stick to the plan. But when opportunities come up that make a lot of sense, uh, you want to have some flexibility. You want the plan to be a bit of a living document, don't you? You do. I mean, there are. you don't want it to be constantly changing and evolving, uh, i.e., you know, moving targets with goals and things like that. But that whole spirit of testing and iterating is uh, is something that our sector as a whole, we have a fear of it. We we fear the sort of the, the testing and iterating in a way that is so different from the commercial side, from the, the, the for-profit side. Um, and in fact, the whole idea, you know, the, the only about 26% of the survey respondents were identified themselves as prospectors, which were the ones who, um, in using Adrian's terms, were the ones that that were more likely to try new things. And the rest, so 70 some percent, were what they called defenders, you know, maintaining the status quo. And so that whole idea of testing and iterating, thinking about innovation, uh, you know, getting out of that mindset of, well, we've always fundraised like this. Um, there, we have a lot more work to, to do in that area for sure. I'll be right back with my conversation with Barbara. If you're thinking that 2021 is the year where you will improve your donor communication so that you can raise more money, so you can be more memorable and build stronger relationships with your donors so they can stay connected and keep on giving, we have a free mini course for you at 5minutefundraisingfix.com. That's the number 5minutefundraisingfix.com. It's three short videos that we'll send to you over the course of three days to help you create a clear and compelling message that moves donors to action. It's a super short, practical advice that has the power to make a huge difference in your fundraising, and it's completely free. It costs you nothing, and putting it into practice is also completely free. 
It's simply about changing the words that you use in your fundraising. This is everything I wish I would have learned a lot sooner in my career. Just go to 5minutefundraisingfix.com. All right, back to my conversation with Barbara Riley. So would it be prudent for nonprofits when they're creating the plan uh, and when they're doing the data-informed planning and they're setting budgets and goals uh, to set up aside a percentage of funds that will be essentially risk capital, which is just we're going to use these amounts of funds and we're going to just try and test things? Yes, for sure. And again, that's um that's a risky thing for people to be thinking about as they're developing out their their expense budgets because you know, it, you you with innovation is inherent risk it, it, failure is inherent. Um and we do have a fear of failure in the sector because we feel like we're letting people down, we feel like we're wasting money, which is, you know, is hard hard earned, hard raised. Um we feel like Donors um, have high expectations of us as nonprofits to be, you know, perfect and, and delivering flawlessly every single time we we implement a new program. So we have to suspend that all of those those ideas that we bring to our our plan our budget planning, and say it's okay if we carve out a certain percentage, a certain amount of money to try some things. I have a friend who um, who has done this in his own organization, uh, and um, where he they have a fail fund, and they carve out a certain percentage or a certain amount, and it's for the team for the fundraising team to to do this where they will maybe test a new direct mail package or add, they're going to invest in some sort of uh, some sort of technology or something but it's it's assumed that something's going to fail but you're not going to know until you try it so it's a, it's a really important um, mindset to try to develop, uh, particularly with your senior leaders. I love having a fail fund. I, I love that idea. One of the key takeaways that I got from, from reading your study was that you found that nonprofits that had a written plan were more likely to have higher subsequent year retention and increased revenue than those that didn't have the plan. So the act of, of charting goals and activities to reach those goals and metrics to measure performance and then having a commitment, um, uh, however strong that commitment was, but but having some sort of commitment to following up on that was the secret sauce of success. Yeah, isn't that crazy? I was um, when I saw that in you know sort of quantified, I uh, it, I was blown away because again we've sort of assumed it anecdotally, um, but to see the the actual concrete results. Uh, really, you know, in increased revenue, increased donor uh, or, or growth and donor retention, it it goes back to these factors of thinking about, you know, not just putting these all on, not just the plan of, you know, we're going to send X number of appeals, X number of e-appeals, X number of solicitations and so forth. But it's how are we going to move the needle in, in our donor engagement strategy overall? How are we going to deepen our relationships with our donors, uh, you know, who are investing in us and really mapping that out and building in, okay, you know, there's the asking, there is the reporting, there's the stewarding and thanking over and over again. How do we, how does that show up in our work? You know, really 
categorizing that uh, is is important. And but I think also it's allowing yourself to sort of kind of forecast what are the things that we need to do? What are the things that we want to try? Uh, so going back to that, that sense of innovation, um, you know, what kinds of appeals, what kinds of maybe events that we want to try differently and so forth, then you start to slowly develop that muscle of memory around being, um, not being a reactor, not being a defender and starting to embrace innovation a little bit. You know, again, it's all about baby steps, but ultimately if you're starting to say, okay, we want to get we want to raise our revenue by X percent. We want to focus on growing donor retention. You can shape your plan in a way that will really start to lead in that direction. So the first three points, uh, things that make fundraising successful was fundraising culture. Number two, data-informed planning. Number three, commitment to the plan. Lastly, number four is senior leadership and board involvement. Now, this is a big topic. We can spend an entire podcast on this. I know you dedicate a large part of your work to this. Um, so let's just start here. Uh, the organizations you looked at, that they feel like the board was contributing to their fundraising success. Um, the short answer is not really. So, and again, not surprising, you know, we've got, um, there's the, the lead, the board source leading with intent. There's the, the Haas foundations underdeveloped report. I mean, we, we, we know, uh, that boards self-identify as not being really, um, helpful or involved in fundraising or really liking fundraising. Um, and we know that th there's a there's often a, a tension which can drive staff away, um, really talented fundraisers away. So it wasn't completely surprising that the respondents didn't feel overwhelmed that their boards were involved were were helpful to the process of, of fundraising. So you know I think that maybe just a little shy of sixty percent had felt that their boards were supportive. You know okay so you might say well that's more than fifty percent so that's that's okay, I suppose, but you know it should be higher than that because these are your these are your closest um, advocates. These are your closest champions and stakeholders. So if they're not um, fully supportive uh, in a way that's going to transform your fundraising, we've got to figure out how to change that. But what actually was was equally as shocking to me was that fewer than half of them said that their boards made a gift. Which again was just as a ha having sat on or sitting currently on two boards, uh, I can't imagine why boards don't um, don't come into their role understanding that that's an important part of their job. And I have I have worked and trained boards to explain to them, you know, there are lots of different ways that they can be supportive, but there are two what I feel are non-negotiable requirements for their job, which is being a donor and being a steward. So being involved in some way of thanking donors. I was shocked to see the percentage, particularly of the board, the, you know, the amount of boards who who don't um, or who fundraisers feel don't support them um, in, in this process. Does involving the board in the planning process change that outcome? So, so when we sit down and we craft this plan, should we actually involve the board in this? Oh, so I, I would say no, not necessarily. So, you know, because you, you want the, your plan to be driven by those whose job it is. So who are, who've got the fundraising experience, you've got the fundraising acumen, who have a very clear sense of, what are the proven practices to implement in their own organizations and what are their trend lines that they want to build on? It will, you know, so you, you want people who, 
whose job it is to be fundraisers, to be driving the fundraising strategy. But that said, you will often have development chairs, development committees who you want to be part of this process in some way. You don't want them writing the plan, but you want them to be reacting to or perhaps providing some feedback or at least being aware of. Because uh, ultimately, your board should be approving the plan as part of their, you know, their their duties. You don't want them writing it, but you want them to trust the the expertise of the staff they've hired to do the fundraising to inform what the what the approach should be. Right. So I, I think some listeners, if I put myself in their shoes, because I've been here, um, some listeners are probably dreading having the board involved in any kind of fundraising because they feel like, you know, maybe the board doesn't get it. They just want to have another big event or they say, like, get a celebrity endorsement or, or they say things like, well, you, how about we find our own version of the Ice Bucket Challenge? And then others are really hoping for more support. Um, and sometimes that's especially apparent in, in sort of small shops. And I think most of us want to feel like the board is advancing fundraising, but we want them to be on the same page as us on that. And we kind of want to drive that strategy. And that seems like it's often a big challenge. How do we get there? Be really clear in what you want the board to do. So I, and I completely understand the perspectives you've just shared, Mike. Um, and I have myself, you know, uh, when I've worked with with clients and they are bringing their, they're involving their board in some way in the development plan, there is that moment of, oh my gosh, how much are they going to try to rewrite the plan? You know, how much is this going to become a, a, a report or a plan by committee, which isn't going to be helpful. And it's actually going to detract from the expertise of the staff that you have. So that middle ground is, is being very clear on what you want the board to do. It's useful to have a section in the development plan that is focused on the board fundraising. So, um, you know, how much do they as a whole, again, this is where you can, if you haven't been tracking it, track what those trends have been for your board. You know, how much have they as a, as a group been giving? What's their average gift been uh, as, again, as a group? I'm sensitive to the fact that many boards are not, are not recruited with this expectation of, um, of being able to contribute and or contribute large amounts. So, and they may not have the capacity themselves. And so I want, and, but there are some who will. So I find that often it's better to think about this as the, in the aggregate and the kind of the whole picture of the board. So how much have they as a group and contributing, and then you can work with each board member individually to figure out what's, what's a meaningful gift for them. But, um, it's too much of a uh, of a course correction if you have recruited a board that has, you know, varying degrees of, of wealth and financial capacity to now suddenly say, oh, we want everybody, we expect everyone to give at a certain level. Um, you know, so I think having that, you know, charging them with how are we going to as a group advance our philanthropy in this organization, but then being very clear, what is the role you want the boards to play? So, um, maybe you want them to do uh, monthly thank you calls or thank you notes. Um, maybe you want them to um, host a certain number of cultivation events. Maybe you want them to be ambassadors at events that you've already got scheduled, um, you know, throughout the year and so forth. So, you know, and it's up to the senior leadership to be able to, you know, kind of defend their fundraising staff's uh, uh, plan and the expertise that they're bringing to that so that the board understands that that was written in a, with a very specific lens and their role is to ensure that it, you know, it feels right, that it feels if the, if the 
staff is um, uh, believes that it's it's a it's a it's a solid uh, plan for growth. But then really focusing on what can the board do to support that? Where can they, what's the role they can play and how can they collectively set the example for uh, for their own uh, contributions to the organization? Barbara, the research that you came out with that we've been talking about today, just to recap, it clearly points to the to the strong correlation between having a written development plan to increased revenue increased donor retention, and higher likelihood of staff retention. And the four things you found that makes all of this work is, number one, a strong fundraising culture. Number two, data-informed planning. Number three is having commitment to the plan. And number four is getting senior leadership and the board involved. Barbara, where can people find this report and where can they find you if they want to know more? So you can find more information about me and the report on whillconsulting.com. Uh, I, there's a tab called level up your skills and the report, uh, there's a link to the report and to Adrian's report, which has all the really important, uh, and interesting data. And then a user guide that I wrote to help kind of interpret, uh, these four areas that we've just discussed today, uh, and, uh, and, and offer some use, some guidance on how to integrate it and, in, in, uh, sort of put it into your own, uh, organization's plans. Um, and then you can all, or you can also learn more about uh, Adrian and his uh, Institute for Sustainable Philanthropy, um, and find a copy of the report there as well. Before we go, I ask every guest on this show if uh, if you have a word of encouragement for all the nonprofit leaders and fundraisers and marketers uh, listening to this show who are doing the hard work of building good in their communities day in and day out. Trust your donors. One of the things that I have. I have felt like a broken record about uh, this year is the worry that donors are going to not support our organizations, right? And especially in a year like this where everything was thrown at us left and right, um, it's easy to feel burnt out. It's easy to feel like people are going to get distracted. But we know, but all this, all the data, even just uh, that I've been watching, giving is up significantly over last year. Donors are wanting to help in some way, and they're doing that through the power of philanthropy. So don't assume that your donors don't want to support you. They're waiting to hear from you. So keep fundraising. And especially as we get into, you know, as we turn the calendar page to a new year uh, and are glad to be rid of 2020, we've got to continue to hold our donors close to us. So trust that they that they still want to support you, despite all the other urgent and maybe seemingly more important priorities that are they're swirling around us, your organization matters to them. So trust that they want to continue to support you and give them that opportunity to do that. Barbara, I'm, I'm grateful you took the time to put together this report to study this topic. And I'm grateful for, for your spirit of generosity and sharing with us today. Thanks so much. Oh, Mike, thank you. It's been my pleasure. And, and it's been such an enjoyable conversation. I appreciate this. Well, that is all for today. Just to recap the four things that all successful nonprofits in Barbara's study had in common were number one, a fundraising culture. Number two, data-informed planning. This is so important. Number three, commitment to the plan. You know, just following through to what you said you would do. And number four, senior leadership and board involvement. Having that 
buy-in from the very top makes such a difference. So here's my encouragement to you. If you don't have a written down plan, maybe you just have everything plotted out on a calendar, you know, put something down on paper and, and keep it simple. Now, fundraising isn't always easy, but I just firmly believe it should be simple because simple means that it's that much more likely that you're actually going to act on it. So include the metrics that you're going to use to measure your success and then just make a point to review the plan. You know, set yourself a little alert in your calendar to review the plan every month or every two months and just see where you're at. I want to thank you for listening to the Build Good podcast brought to you by Build Good and 5MinuteFundraisingFix.com. Before I log off, remember you were made for these times. You've got this. You're resilient and you're creative. And the world desperately needs go-getters and go-givers like you right now. So hang in there. I'm your host, Mike Dirksen, cheering you on as you build good in the world.